Welcome back to Ryan Tay. This episode of the Assembly podcast looks at new legislation which received royal assent in February 2022. The aptly titled Northern Ireland Ministers, Elections and Petitions of Concern Act brings into law those parts of the new decade new approach agreement that relate to the Assembly and the Executive. To navigate us through the changes and explain how they will impact on the day-to-day workings of the Assembly, we're welcoming back Dr Gareth McGrath, Director of Parliamentary Services. So, welcome back to the hot seat, Gareth. Thanks for being here again today. Thanks, Sinead. Thanks, Tracy. Let's start with appointing ministers and elections. We all know that for three years between 2017 and 2020, we had no functioning executive or assembly following the resignation of the then Deputy First Minister, Martin McGuinness. One of the aims of this new law is to ensure that Northern Ireland isn't left without a government for a long period like that again. But how does MEPOC try to do this? Well, if we think back to the period between 2017 and 2020, we had a period of uh, three years, more or less, whenever there were no ministers in office. And one of the main changes that the MEPOC bill has brought in is that, first of all, ministers will remain in office in certain circumstances. And secondly, there is a requirement on the Secretary of State to call an election in certain circumstances. So if I go into just two scenarios in a little bit more detail, the first scenario is where we find ourselves in February of this year following the resignation of the then First Minister. And since then, as we'll all be aware, um, ministers other than the First Minister and Deputy First Minister have continued to remain in office and the Assembly has continued to meet. Ministers have continued to take questions and question him. Bills have continued to to pass into law and so on and so forth. So whilst not trying to in any way uh, downplay the impact of the resignation of a First Minister and Deputy First Minister uh, and the functioning of the executive, to to an extent, the functioning of government has continued and decisions have continued to be made. But that can only last for a period of up to 24 weeks. Um, And whilst technically that 24 weeks can be broken down into chunks of six weeks, I think for the purposes of this podcast, we can say that ministers can continue to remain in office for up to 24 weeks. And during that period, the Assembly can continue to meet. It just so happens that the 24-week period did not expire this particular time because of the fixed uh, Assembly election on the 5th of May. What happens then is obviously we have um, the election and that's when scenario two more or less kicks in. So scenario two is when we have an election and following the election, the assembly is required to meet within eight days um, and is is required to appoint uh, a first minister and deputy first minister and other ministers. So if that doesn't happen what happens under MEPOC is that a further period of 24 weeks then kicks in, which would take us more or less towards uh, November. And again, during that time, ministers will remain in post um, in, in, in more constrained circumstances than would normally be the case if there was a functioning executive. And uh, those ministers can continue to take decisions and the Assembly can continue to meet uh, and consider some specific types of legislation not coming from the executive because there won't be an executive in that particular case. 
If you take those two scenarios, theoretically, it means that ministers can continue to remain in office for a period of up to 48 weeks. Now, it's important to say that the first chunk and the second chunk don't automatically link. But in theory, um, it means that we can continue for almost a year with uh, ministers remaining in office other than the first minister and deputy first minister. Okay, that makes sense. So to recap, and I think it is much easier to do that, we split the two scenarios. So situation one, after an election, MEPOC has changed the time frame for when a new first minister and deputy first minister have to be nominated, increasing it from 14 days to 24 weeks before the Secretary of State calls an election. Is that right? Yes, that, that is correct at a very high level. But it is important to just emphasise that there are all sorts of ifs, buts and potential cul-de-sacs in there as well. So there are all sorts of different scenarios within that. For example, what happens if a speaker is elected uh, and deputy speakers are elected following the election? What happens if a speaker and deputy speakers aren't elected? Um, so there are, uh, there are um, it's almost like a, a decision tree. There are many different ways in which this could go. So, so at a very high level, yes, that's correct. So for situation two, say we're in the middle of a mandate, for example, and either the first minister or the deputy first minister resigns, the new law has changed the time frame in which these positions need to be filled. Yes, Sinead, what that means is that we now have up to 24 weeks to nominate a first minister and deputy first minister before the secretary of state needs to call an election. And then potentially after the election, we have a further period of 24 weeks to nominate a first minister and deputy first minister. And the 24 weeks and the second 24 weeks are subsequent to one another. So that adds up to a total period of 48 weeks. Okay, so... That is becoming clear. Regardless of how or why we don't have a First Minister, Deputy First Minister, changes in MEPOC enable existing ministers to stay in post. The Assembly committees continue their scrutiny rule and the Assembly can continue to meet and pass legislation. Is that right? That's right. And and obviously, again, following the resignation of the, the former First Minister earlier this year, the Assembly continued to meet until it was dissolved at the end of March. It continued to pass a large number of bills. Con- uh, committees continued to meet and scrutinise a, a large number of, uh, of, of departmental issues. Ministers continued to remain in post um, and, and um, motions were debated in the Assembly. So um, a significant amount of business continued to take place. But again, I don't think any of us would be trying to say that this is an ideal situation, that, that we have a, an assembly functioning in the absence of, of an executive. So after the election in May, let's assume we don't have a, a first or a deputy first minister nominated. Because of the changes, we know that the current ministers will stay in post. But just to throw a spanner in the works, what happens if one or more of those ministers are not re-elected as MLAs? Surely they can't just stay in a ministerial role. So again, there are lots of ifs, buts and maybes in this. And um, probably the easiest way to look at it is if we take the justice minister post out and put that to the side for the moment. So in respect of all the other ministerial positions other than the first minister and deputy first minister, what it means is that if uh, an existing minister is not returned at the election, 
then the party from which that minister came is given the opportunity to nominate a replacement to that ministerial position. And that can happen um, without, a, uh, without the Assembly re- being required to meet. So that, that process is relatively straightforward. Now, there is no requirement on a party to nominate um, a replacement minister in that particular case, but it is possible for the party to do so. In the case of the Justice Minister, um, that is not possible because that uh, ministerial position is the subject of a cross-community vote in the Assembly. So in that case, the Assembly is required to meet um, as part of the, the the wider process of ministerial appointments. So if um, if in the scenario that the that the Justice Minister was not returned, then that ministerial portfolio would remain vacant. Okay, well, that, that makes sense. If you're not re-elected, you can't remain a minister. And I'm sure a lot of people listening would have been wondering how that was going to work. So let's move on to um, the next change in the in the MEPOC Act, the Petition of Concern. Now, originally in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, the Petition of Concern was included as a safeguard mechanism. It was to ensure that key decisions in the Assembly were made on a cross-community basis. So can you take us through what the changes are in the new law? So the MEPOC bill has introduced a number of significant changes to the Petition of Concern mechanism. Um, And that includes that the 30 members who are required to sign a Petition of Concern now need to come from more than one party. Um, And again, there are um, new rules in in the Northern Ireland Act um, around exactly how that works. It also triggers what's now called a 14-day period of consideration. And it's my understanding that that was intended to be a kind of breathing space to allow members in the Assembly to think about the decisions that they're about to take and to reflect on those and also potentially to allow an opportunity for uh, quiet cross-party discussion on on the matters that are the subject of the Petition of Concern. And then after the 14-day period expires, the petition must be then confirmed and will then be subject to a cross-community vote in the Assembly. One of the other changes that has happened is that the previous um, policy, if I could put it that way, of the Speaker not voting on a petition of concern has now been enshrined in law and has been extended to include the Deputy Speakers. So from now on, what that means is that the Speaker and Deputy Speakers are prohibited from signing a petition of concern. Uh, not that it happened really in practice in any case, but it just puts it into law. Okay, so the other change that um, has been made to the operation of the Petition of Concern is that it can no longer be used at the second stage of a bill. And I'm sure everybody listening has some appreciation of all the various stages that, that a bill has to go to, but perhaps doesn't understand the significance of a Petition of Concern not being allowed at that second stage. Could you maybe just um, take us through why that's significant? Well, again, and why it's that's my important? understanding that whenever discussions were ongoing um, during the political talks that led to New Decade, New Approach, that one of the matters that was considered was how can legislation be progressed within the Assembly to a sufficient stage to allow it to have been the subject of fairly considerable um, debate and scrutiny. And as a result, NDNA said, well, really that needs to be beyond second stage. So the the second stage will allow a bill to be debated in the Assembly. And by the way, if a majority of members at second stage 
don't agree with the principles of that bill, well, then it will be defeated at second stage in any case. This act just means that it cannot be the subject of a petition of concern at second stage. So the bill um, will come to second stage. It will then potentially go into committee stage unless it's a subject of accelerated passage, which again is a whole other subject area. And in committee, it will be subject of significant scrutiny and consultation. And then after that, there will be a, an opportunity for members to um, consider the, the detail of, of the bill and any amendments that they wish to make to it. Um, and at that stage, then the petition of concern can be applied um, to either amendments or at final stage. So that's basically to give legislation a, a fair chance. Yeah, I, th- I think I think so, particularly um, in respect of private members' bills. And it's my understanding that the parties, um, to a greater or lesser extent, to be fair, um, wanted private members' bills to be given a fair wind and not to be the subject of a cross-community vote at second stage. But again, just to reiterate, there there is still a vote on a bill, on all bills at second stage. It just means that those bills are the subject of a simple majority vote rather than a cross-community vote, which is a different threshold. All of these changes to to MEPOC are obviously going to have a knock-on effect um, on the operation of the Assembly, and that's going to mean changes to standing orders. I was just wondering, Gareth, if you could sort of explain, has has that already happened, or is that something that uh, still has to happen? Um, also, just for those people listening who don't know, standing orders are simply the rules that govern the what they call the legislative operation of the Assembly, so the, the procedural business. Because the Act only came into force right almost at the end of the mandate, the Committee on Procedures, which is the Assembly Committee which looks at um, the the standing orders of the Assembly, that committee has not had the chance really to look at the development of new standing orders in detail. So there is a bit of work for that committee to do at the start of the next mandate um, in order to determine how it wants to implement the requirements of uh, the MEPOC Act. So how long is that process likely to take? And is it going to cause any grey areas or confusion around what the new rules are? Well, uh, there are two sides to that. First of all, we have um, the Northern Ireland Act in place. We have the new Section 42 of the Northern Ireland Act, which deals with petitions of concern. And that is law and that will be applied um, as and when petitions of concern are brought forward. So there are there is no greyness in that. The greyness in this is that some of the, 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 the intricate detail of how petitions of concern are dealt with are then the subject of the Assembly standing orders. And, uh, and it's really not possible for me to say how long that will take because, first of all, the committee will need to consider it in detail. Um, they'll wish to maybe invite evidence from um, certain stakeholders. Um, they will then decide if and how they will bring forward draft standing orders to the Assembly and then the Assembly will need to agree those draft standing orders on a cross-community basis. So there are quite a few steps to go through. There are quite a few hurdles to jump over and and I think it wouldn't really be appropriate for me to say, first of all, how long that process would take and secondly, what the outcome of that process will be. So in the meantime, the fallback is essentially the legislation. It's the law. It's it's what's there. Yep, the, the law is there. So the law says petition of concern must be signed by 30 members from two or more parties. It can't be signed by a speaker and deputy speakers and there will be a 14-day consideration period. And, that, and that's really 
Um, and it can't be applied at second stage. And that, that's really the, the, the bare bones of it. And that applies now. Okay, so that's the changes to the petition of concern and what that will mean going forward. Um, so the final change then that MEPOC has made is the Code of Conduct for Executive Ministers. The Code of Conduct, as we know, sets out the rules and procedures Prime Ministers and Junior Ministers carry out their duties. But what specifically does the new law add or change and why? Well, again, uh, this is really a matter of, of what I would call high politics. And it has resulted from the findings of the Renewable Heat Incentive Inquiry and um, political discussions that led to the New Decade, New Approach Agreement. So I wouldn't necessarily want to get into the detail of, of what, why and where and how. Um, and I should also say that, that very much the ministerial code is for the executive um, as opposed to the assembly. It is a key part of the Northern Ireland Act. So it's not, it's not anything that the assembly itself um, can change. But it does seek to set the standards of conduct and the ways in which ministers must behave when they are taking decisions. And it takes consideration of things like the Nolan principles um, and conflicts of interest and how the, the wider executive should work uh, and how its decisions should be made. So whilst we have the ministerial code, which is set in the Northern Ireland Act and can't be changed by the Assembly, the Assembly itself also has a code of conduct for members. And that code of conduct is... Um, overseen, if I could put it that way, by um, an assembly committee and and by the assembly's commissioner for standards who uh, prepares reports for consideration by that committee. So there are two sets of processes, albeit that they are linked um, and that, for example, the commissioner for standards oversees both ministerial conduct and member conduct, but they are governed by two separate processes. Okay, so that's it. That's MEPOC. Um, Gareth, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, any final thoughts for us before we, we wrap up? You know, first of all, I just want to say thank you again for giving me the opportunity to talk about this act. And I should probably finish off by saying that there's a long story here and a short story. And what I've tried to do in this podcast is to give you the short story. But I do need to say this is complicated stuff. And whilst I've tried to be relatively high level and not be superficial, um, there is an awful lot of the devil in the detail here. Um, this legislation weaves its way through various aspects of how the Assembly does its business. And it is complicated. I think we can all agree legislation is a very complicated thing. Um, I think you've done an excellent job today of breaking all of that down for us. So once again, thanks very much, Gareth. So that's it for episode two, MEPOC in a nutshell. We've enjoyed deciphering the new legislation and we've hoped you find it useful and informative. Thank you for all the feedback we've had on the new podcast series. We really appreciate your views and your ideas for future episodes. Please continue to share the series with your friends and colleagues, and we hope we'll be back soon to bring you episode three.